Hey, how we doing? It's Ed Gallo here, wrestling for MMA podcast. I I said I was back to a regular schedule after last time, but uh, I got busy, so I'm back now, and I'm gonna be covering a good amount of topics today. It's pretty much just listener questions and a couple questions from Patreon. So what I'm gonna do is cover the questions from Patreon first, and then you know spend a little more time on those. And then I'll go and I'll, I'll do some of the ones I got from Twitter. Those would be a little more rapid fire. So this shouldn't be super long, I don't think. But we'll see what happens. Uh, things to recap that have happened since last time in the worlds of wrestling and MMA. Uh, most immediately in wrestling, there was an event. There was a wrestling card this past weekend. And that was amazing. It was a rumble on the rooftop. It was a charity exhibition. Uh, an organization called Beat the Streets Chicago put that on. Beat the Streets is like uh, getting uh, urban youth involved in the sport of wrestling, and they're they're looking for people who are you know in underserved communities, and you know they get them in on into, onto a team, they get them gear, they send them to competitions. It's trying to get them involved in the sport because being involved in athletics as a whole is very beneficial. Studies say, and uh, wrestling's a, a particularly great sport because. You don't really need a lot of equipment, and you just need the coaches and, you know, parachutes and headgear and the ability to get to these places. So it's a really great organization. There's one in pretty much every major city. The United States Beat the Streets Philly is actually a great organization that I hope to work for a little bit in the coming in the coming years. Uh, so yeah, but uh, a lot of good action on that card. The main event was Jordan Oliver versus Jason Nolf. There was a size disparity in that match. There was a size disparity in a lot of the matches, but Oliver is a 65 kilograms guy. Nolf has been wrestling at 74 kilograms, like bumping up. He's been in the process of getting bigger, so it's been it was it it was weird. Uh, it was definitely weird. Oliver is a really slick outside operator, and he you know counters pressure really well. Nolf's pressure isn't really traditional; like he's gonna like make a lot of contact with you and like push into you and tie up with you. He's mostly an outside operator as well, but super heavy on his snaps. So Oliver was, you know, pushing him off, pushing him off, you know, trying to make the tie-ups a little looser so Nolf couldn't hang on him. But Nolf never gave him a look that he could counter. He never, like, came in hard at him. And uh, basically three points were awarded both ways due to passivity and cautions. So it ended up being uh, 2-1 with the match, only having a few seconds left just from passivities. And then uh, Oliver had to try to do something, and uh, he got scored on at the end. So Nolf won, but it wasn't really much to look at. Um, there were a lot of cool things that happened in the card. Uh, listen to our podcast that I did with Richard Mann and Jack Hurley. That should be like two or three videos back in the YouTube channel or on the Spotify channel. It does to talk about the other stuff that happened. Uh, there was also a mixed rules match where... Uh, Pat Downey, who was a 2019 World Team member in Freestyle, wrestled Joe Rao, who was a 2019 World Team member in Greco, and they did first period Greco, second period Freestyle. That was interesting, so if you want to hear us talk about that, I recommend it. Uh, But yeah, it was really nice to have wrestling again, even if it was kind of like a janky production, Uh, but it was like super last, not last minute, but it was, you know, put together rather hastily, and it, it was in a traditional platform, and it wasn't something that had broadcast wrestling before so I think considering all that it was great and it's just nice to have competition again there's gonna be another event I don't know if there's one next week 
I heard talk of next week, but the big flow wrestling card is going to be a month from now. Well, a little less than a month from now, and that's going to be Kyle Dake, two-time world champion, four-time NCAA champion versus Frank Camizo, two-time world champion, uh, Olympic bronze, multiple-time world medalist. Other than that, and that's going to be a cool match. That's another cross-weight match. Dake is 79 kilograms, uh, pretty sizable for the weight, bumping back down to 74 for the Olympic year, but they're going to be wrestling at 79, and uh, Camizo started as like a 57 and he was basically full size when he got to 70 kilograms and now that he's a 74 he's still a little bit small for the weight it hasn't been an issue too much but against Dake I think it'll be an issue and uh, maybe yeah we'll talk about that when it's closer to to happening so that was great uh the UFC has been putting on events nothing like major in terms of wrestling that's been going on in, in MMA I mean Poirier and Hooker the wrestling in that fight was uh not the kind I'd like to analyze, so I'm not going to. And Blades Volkov was a little bit interesting on a technical note, just that uh, Blades really prefers that high double. Um, he shoots like basically right at the hips and barely level changes. And the first couple times he did it, I think because he had more energy, he was just bowling Volkov over, which is pretty funny to see, uh, just because Volkov is so upright in his stance and he doesn't really change levels with you. So blades the entire fight just stood in front of him you know fainted out a little bit you know threw at him a little bit and sometimes he was actually timing when Volkov would respond and then hit his shot sometimes he just waited for like I think this is when he'll probably be thinking about striking and this shot anyway so sometimes they're intercepting sometimes they weren't it didn't matter he was able to shoot him back to the cage no matter what uh so it's just funny how Volkov didn't have any real plan to like underhook or change levels with him or throw level intercepting strikes or anything like that. He was just kind of standing there getting pushed and uh, they just grappled on the cage and near the cage for five rounds. And that was smart by Blades. Why not do that if you can get away with it? So not a, a ton to unpack. I hope that we have some stuff to unpack coming up with UFC 251. That's going to be really fun. Uh, even if the matchups are a little sad, uh, and I'll talk about each matchup in a second because that's actually my first question. So we're just going to roll right into it. Um, Kylan, one of our, our dear patrons, and I really appreciate Kylan because he is not a wrestling fan, like traditionally, but he's been asking a lot of wrestling questions and been trying to get into it, which I that means a lot to me, giving me a chance to spread the word a little bit and, and make new fans, which is my goal. I think that's why I have a crossover podcast in the first place. But Kylan asks, in the three title fights of UFC 251, how would you like to see each man implement wrestling into their game plans for the best results? I think that's a really good question. So let's just go through all of them. Uh, we'll start with uh, Peter Yan versus Jose Aldo, which I think we all know that Aljamain Sterling is the number one contender in the Bantamweight division. And, yeah, they had already made this booking, I believe, when, when Sterling and Sandhagen fought. But it's just, I mean, Aldo lost his only fight at 135. He shouldn't be at 135 in the first place. It's a sad, a sad state. As much as I want Jan to win the title, like, not like this. This is not the way I wanted that to happen. But nonetheless, it's happening, probably. Um, wrestling. I mean, I don't expect Aldo to wrestle with him. 
maybe out of nowhere he's going to bring back his his double legging that he showed against Mark Hominick. I mean, he hit like an outside slip body lock against uh, the Korean Zombie. He took down Ricardo Lamas, so he's taken people down before. I think at 135 he should be interested in preserving his energy. Maybe he'll wrestle because he might have a size advantage, but I don't see that happening. Uh, Peter Young is a little bit more interesting to consider just because he is really coming along as a wrestler. I'm really high on him uh, as a developing wrestler. He he has some troubles defensively just because a lot of his striking offensively it considers wrestling. It, like it's clear that he's built his striking, uh, he's built wrestling into his striking as an offensive player but not really so much defensively so a lot of the times so he'll like leave himself with a lot of position or like stand there throwing and not really consider his hips or his, his legs as much and get shot on it and you know taken over but he's a great scrambler uh, like knows how to scramble and is athletic enough to do it and uh what I really like is his offense uh a lot of it builds into his head movement like we talked about the outside slip as a setup for like duck unders and crazy stuff like that and he's got a nice uh, like scissor trip from rear standing he does a lot of cool stuff in ACB especially he against uh, Magomed Magomedov first of all just everything from the clinch is beautiful like his foot sweeps and uh, you know shrugs off to the back and that returns but he also does has a really good feel for uh, hand fighting to set up level changes there's one point where they're against the cage and he you know, taps on his face a bunch of times to, to bring his hands up and then shoots under for the double leg and does a silly kind of finish. But the entry was great. Sion's pretty versatile as a wrestler. And if you consider the wrestling that you might see in a boxing match, for example, like clinch wrestling, uh, a lot of, you know, pulling the wrists and, you know, pulling on the collar and punching off those positions. He's great at that. I consider that wrestling as well. That should definitely be something he does against Aldo because I think with a fighter who's aging and a fighter who's making a huge weight cut, you want to get in as many hits as you can, uh, especially early when he's dry. I think that'll be helpful. Once they warm up and they get into the fight, it'll be a little bit harder to you know shock him. Consider that Marais was like switch kicking him in the head immediately uh, against Aldo. So that's definitely something to look at. Jan's whole thing is that he builds momentum and snowballs people. As, as a fight goes on, he picks up his pace progressively. It's like the first half of the first round is a feeler type of pressure. It's mostly just footwork pressure and a lot of striking. Uh, and then, you know, once he gets a few reads, he starts to add in the offense and pick up the pace and, and keep rolling. And by the third or fourth round, you're drowning it because if you haven't knocked him out, he's coming after you. He's working the body and he's, you know, cage cutting and it, it's beautiful. I love watching him. He's probably one of my favorite active fighters right now, and he'll probably go down as one of my favorite fighters of all time to watch. Uh, so against Aldo, I think because Aldo moves his head reactively pretty well, and because Aldo is not so susceptible to pressure, even at 135, I think he'll be tough to pressure um, just because, you know, off the back foot, he has pressure intercepting strikes like his jab uh, or knees, and he can also you know, pivot off and angle off and make sure you don't push him straight back. So I think the wrestling in a boxing sense is going to be really important. So if Jan is, you know, throwing a lead straight to get into range and, and left hooking off of it, if something happens where they're collapsing that range and he's not landing and Aldo's evading, I think just getting a hold of him and just trying to land something off a collar tie or uppercut off the collar tie and dirty box a little bit, that'll be important. 
uh, just to make Aldo feel him and uh, trigger responses. Because Aldo is uh, guilty sometimes of reacting a lot in the pocket and throwing really aggressive, uh, energy-consuming counters. And I think drawing that stuff out will be important. Obviously, you don't get hit by it, but just making Aldo do things is going to be important early on. But more importantly, he needs to know when Aldo is going to do things. It has to be on his terms. Um, it, there's a debate about whether or not it makes sense for Aldo to you know, try to low volume his way through this or you know, try to get his offense off early before Jan picks up his pace. I think both have arguments in their favor. I can't really say what's going to work because Aldo is not quite himself anymore, so it's, it's hard to quite estimate what he should do. Um, and there's also the idea that maybe when Jan does pick up his pressure, Aldo will be a little more static and a little easier to find. And maybe he can pressure him to the cage and, you know, enter in on, on some wrestling uh, situations. And even if he doesn't take him down, which I don't, maybe he'll take him down once or twice throughout the fight, but he probably won't hold him down. Uh, but you could still, you know, on optics score in the eyes of the judges, even if it's not right. Uh, like how Volkanovski held him against the cage a lot and you know, landed some small knees and, and things of that nature. That still looked good for the judges, even if it's not necessarily actually a scoring technique in the rules. So I, I think that's all. those are all options. I, th- I don't think Aldo should look to wrestle um, unless he happens to have a big size or strength advantage and he's been working on it. He's been looking at, at Jan's game, but I just don't think it's really in the cards for him right now. I think he'll look to, uh, to counter a lot. I think he'll be looking for for boxing-based counters especially. That's his best shot. So that's that fight. Uh, Holloway versus Volkanovski. The wrestling you would want to see is from Volkanovski. I don't think that's Max's path. Um, not that Max is a bad wrestler. He's a great wrestler. He's actually a very good defensive wrestler and, and a great clinch fighter, which is wrestling as well. Um, I, I expect Volkanovski to have the exact same game plan as last time because why wouldn't you? Um, you know, when they're at mid range, kicking both sides of the leg, uh, when when you know Max tries to plant, and then when Max does enter in off his straights, finding the counters for those and, and discouraging him from getting into the pocket. What did work for Max was kicking entries. I'm not going to recommend that Volkanovski look to catch the kicks because that's dangerous. Um, yeah, maybe Max gets a little more aggressive with his entry style and he you know, starts like, you know, exposing his hips by entering off kicks. Uh, that would be great. I think what Max should do is get draw out that that back reaction, like back him up a little bit on your your boxing entry, and then kick off that and don't chase it. Because what was happening in the first fight a lot was he was chasing it and that's when he was getting countered. So maybe if he kicks off that. Um, but yeah, for Volkanovski, he's not really like an. Out- open space shot artist I don't really see that being something for him and I don't think it's going to be his game to pressure Max and push him back so I don't see a a wrestling heavy game plan for either of them being a factor but if they do wrestle it'll probably be in the clinch and Max was very good there and and you saw in the first fight he's really good at straightening people up with the wizard and getting his frames in and catching wrists and turning them around and landing knees and elbowing off the wrists and he's a great clinch fighter so I think Volkanovski will probably look to avoid that. And who knows, maybe if Max does get his pressure going, he'll start clinching because I think it's not the worst idea. He's really good there. Uh, so not a lot to consider in that fight, I don't think, just at first glance. And the main event, 
Is this the main event? I don't know. Usman and Burns. Tough one, because some people say that Usman isn't looking to wrestle, seeing as Burns is, you know, the grappler. But, I mean, Usman is probably top five mat wrestlers in MMA right now, and that's pretty good for him. And I don't see Burns as a super threatening bottom player, especially up a weight. He's a little less mobile. Uh, I don't think it's a problem if, if Usman wrestles him. Usman can probably do exactly what he does normally, and it'll work out. Uh, he didn't do exactly what he does normally against Colby, but I think he can definitely pressure Burns. Uh, Gunnar Nelson didn't have much of a problem getting Burns on the back foot. Uh, the Woodley fight doesn't really tell us much just because, you know, Woodley lets everyone get him to the cage. So what do you really learn there? Uh, but yeah, just from what I've seen from Burns, I think the most telling fight is probably the the, uh, the Gunnar Nelson fight. But yeah, on the back foot, he looked pretty shallow. Um, against the cage, he's good. He's good. He knows how to reverse position. He knows how to, you know, do opportunistic uh, like throws, like a Harai Goshi, for example, like a wizard kick uh, for wrestling people. Yeah, he's, he's good there, but I think Usman can probably squish him against the cage. And I think Usman knows that, considering they've trained together. And he can probably do a lot of grappling against the cage, you know, both clinching and his normal shot entries and, uh, you know, converting on singles and doubles against the cage. Uh, so I expect Usman to do what he normally does. Um, yeah, I don't really think much of Burns as, as a counterfighter or as a fighter on the back foot. And it's going to be really hard to press the bigger, stronger, more physical person. Uh, also the more sophisticated striker. Not that either of them are entirely sophisticated, but it's going to be really difficult for Burns to put Usman on the back foot. Whereas Usman can probably get him back fairly easily. So I, I kind of see that as a wash, um, depending on how they fight. Who knows, maybe Usman wants to just take center and just strike freely and not really implement any specific approach, which I'm sure he can get away with it, especially now that he's with Whitman. Uh, you, you foresee some, some tightness being added and, and even more body work than normal, which would be really helpful. But yeah, I just don't find Burns to be clean enough or physical enough at the weight to make a make a lot of problems for for Usman so despite that being the wrestliest fight I don't think it's that complicated so that was a really good question Kylan I hope I gave that the depth that you wanted and now I'm going to move on to a different kind of question another patron question it's a little longer answer this is from uh, Martin 89 I don't know who you are on Twitter so I'm gonna try to figure that out maybe you can tell me if you listen to this but he says, first off, love the content on the site. Keep it up. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate that. He said, my question is about Team Quest. Yeah, for those that don't know, Team Quest is uh, out of, are they in Oregon? Are they in California? I think they're in California. But it's a bunch of guys from the Pacific Northwest uh, either way. And that's like Dan Henderson, Randy Couture, Matt Lindland, Chael Sonnen, that whole crew. Sam Alvey. Can't forget Sam Alvey. <laughs> He said, uh, Team Quest. During quarantine, I've been watching some older fights and came across Randy Couture versus Mike Van Arsdale, Matt Lindland versus Joe Dirksen, etc. So my question is, in terms of wrestling, how good were these guys in college and internationally? From Martin. Well, Martin, I picked three guys in specific to tell you about how good they are because naming credentials takes a while sometimes. And uh, I forgot to have Dan Henderson be one of them. So I will tell you about the credentials of Randy Couture, Matt Lindland, and Chael Sonnen. 
I really wish I'd done Dan Henderson. I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> so Randy Couture. In high school, he was a state champ in Washington, which means not much. It's not really a state I think highly of historically or today. Uh, but, you know, it just shows his potential. He did not go straight into college after that. He went to the Army for six years, and he wrestled Greco for the Army. You know, he didn't really have a background in Greco before that, but I'm sure he had some upper body chops to be able to do that. Um, and, yeah, he, he represented the Army, and they, they, they're around. I think the Army Greco program is a lot more established today than it was then, so I think it would be a bigger deal to me reading it if it was recent especially with the world-class athlete program being implemented through the military. But, it, you know, it was just a, a start at that point. And uh, after his service was over, he transferred to Oklahoma State, where he was a three-time All-American and a two-time finalist, which is fantastic for Division One wrestling. Um, never an NCAA champion, but he was there the same time as, like, Mark Kerr, which is, that's a huge ask to be able to beat someone like that. And then post-college, he made the world team four times so he was the best guy in the country at least four times four years um never meddled at worlds but was still you know on the circuit and doing well that's very common for us greco we have a lot of problems <laughs> converting our, our domestic success to international and uh that, that's been in we've had really good teams in the past but it's like an era by era thing right now we're we're we have an exciting team, but we're not doing very well internationally. But he almost made the Olympic team three times. He was national team three times, which is top three placement at Olympic team trials. And he was like fourth. He was still in the mix. He was in the semis, I think, in 2000. So Randy Couture from 1988 to 2000 was one of the best guys in the country uh, for Greco. And that's after starting six years later than most people did for the, that circuit. So Randy was like a legend as a wrestler. Think about like Daniel Cormier, how many national championships he has in freestyle. And it's kind of a similar situation where he was like a, just a staple, a staple of the scene. Uh, but yeah, Randy, Randy was awesome. Uh, Matt Lindland is an interesting one. So Matt Lindland is the current head coach of the men's Greco team in the United States. Um, Gary Frazier was the head coach before that. Gary Fraser is now head of uh, fundraising, like development for USA Wrestling, and he's a really awesome guy, and he's an Olympic champion uh, in Greco, and I love Steve Fraser. Anyway, Matt Lindland uh, didn't start wrestling until he was 15, is what I read, which is very late. Most of these people are like six, seven years old when they start. Uh, but he started when he was 15, and by the time he got to the college level, he wrestled for a junior college called Clackamas, which is in the Pacific Northwest. I think it's in Oregon. And he won a junior college title. Usually when you win one or two junior college titles, because it's only a two-year program, uh, you get looks from D1 programs. And he did. He transferred to Nebraska, which is a very good, historically, uh, Division One program. And his first season, he won a conference championship. And I don't think he qualified for nationals. And if he did, he didn't win there. And then his senior season, he was undefeated during the regular seasons. He was definitely the best guy in the country his senior year. And then at NCAAs, he was upset in his first match and then did not win through the blood around, didn't place. So best guy in the country, didn't place at nationals. Unfortunate. I think uh, a lot of these stories are about like, uh, you know, non-traditional paths to, to success. 
so we have somebody who went from junior college to best guy in the country to didn't place to Greco Olympian. <laughs> so what happened was he wrestled for for a couple of years on the Greco scene, and then for the 2000 Olympic trials, he made the finals, and he was wrestling this guy, and he lost. However, during the match, one of the scores, and I think one of the winning scores, was a leg foul. So Lin-Lin said that this guy somehow affected his legs using his own legs to score, which is illegal in Greco. So you know how in Judo, you can't touch the legs with your hands? In Greco, you can't touch the legs with your hands or your legs. It's only upper body. Um, so Lin-Lin actually ended up like suing and taking it to the courts to get this this win overturned, and he succeeded, which is why they call him the law. That's where that nickname came from. And he actually got a rematch, and he teched the guy. So uh, whether or not the circumstances were totally fair or consistent, doesn't matter. He made the team, and it all worked out because he won a silver medal in the Olympics in Greco that year. So that, that worked out. Uh, the next year, he made the world team in 2001, and he won silver again. And the crazy thing is, while all of this is happening, he was an MMA fighter. He was an MMA fighter since 1997, uh, which might have been his senior year in college, I, I assume. Um, but yeah, he uh, he had six MMA fights and three UFC fights by the time he ended his wrestling career, which is just nuts to me. So yeah, Matt Linland is, is another interesting story. Uh, Chael Sonnen, here's one that might interest people. So I was expecting to say mean things about Chael. <laughs> for this section, but he, it's actually pretty impressive. So in high school, he was an Oregon State runner-up, which is, you know, nothing. He wrestled for BYU, uh, which used to have a, a Division One wrestling program, and then he was worried about them cutting the wrestling program, and he had an offer uh, to go transfer to wrestle at the University of Oregon, and he did transfer there. The University of Oregon also does not have a, a wrestling program anymore. Both those programs cut their, cut their teams. Uh, I think the University of Oregon did it because they wanted to divert more funding to their wrestling, and not their wrestling, their football team. So like, we don't respect them at all. So if you're if you're a football watcher, uh, an American football watcher, uh, you should root against the University of Oregon for sure because that's just disgusting. Um, but yeah, he was an All-American for the University of Oregon his senior year. He placed eighth, which is the lowest you can place to be an All-American, but it's still an accomplishment for sure. Uh, he was a two-time conference runner-up. He wrestled in the Pac-10, which it totally varies how tough that's going to be. It, traditionally, it's not one of the tougher conferences, especially right now, um, but you know, it, it just depends on the year, so you can't judge it just by name alone. Um, and then he was, was doing Greco the whole time, so in Greco, he placed at University Nationals four times and won it twice. Uh, University Nationals... Again, it totally depends on the year. It depends on who showed up as to how good it is, how good of a competition it is. It, it usually doesn't mean too much, but every once in a while we get some tough guys. It's really just like an age group level, uh, you know, international styles tournament. So you'll, you'll get the same guys you'd be wrestling at like a like a junior world team trials or U23 world team trials or something like that. It's essentially what it is. But I think he was outstanding wrestler, OW. Uh, one of the years he won it, which just tells me that he was running through this thing at that point. So definitely stamping himself as one of the more uh, serious threats for a Greco team. 
at the time. And he, when you win University Nationals, you go on to University of Worlds. Um, and he did get silver at University of Worlds. So that's not a, a really important or prestigious international competition, but it's probably his best, his best international result. Um, he plays fourth twice at U.S. Senior Nationals, which is a tournament to qualify for the World Team Trials or Olympic Team Trials. And then in 2000, he took third at the Olympic team trials. So you will hear people say that Chael Sonnen was an Olympic team alternate. That does not mean he was the runner up. It means he was national team. So top three, freestyle or Greco, top three at world team trials or Olympic team trials, they're national teams. They travel with the team to the championships. And just in case something happens, one of those two other guys are, are in the mix for the spot. So he was, he was proximal. He was proximal to an Olympic team spot. Um, and he won the Dave Schultz uh, Memorial Tournament two times, which is another type of tournament that you need to win to qualify for a world or Olympic trials situation. So he was tough. He was super tough uh, on the domestic circuit, and he was okay internationally. He had some success. I don't know who he wrestled at uh, University of Worlds, and I really wouldn't be able to tell you who they are anyway because I don't follow Greco closely. But he was pretty impressive. Uh, and maybe in the future I will talk about Dan Henderson because I don't know why I left him out. <laughs> so thank you, Martin, for that question. I, I enjoyed looking that stuff up and giving some context there. Okay. I'm going to drink this water really quick, and then we'll do some rapid-fire questions, and I think that can be it. Okay. This question is from Henry Vernese. Vernis, I don't know how to pronounce that, but he's a, a boxing fan. He's tight with my my fight site boxing staff, so he's a friend of mine by by association. And he's asking Ed, is there a technique or move in wrestling that is hardly used in MMA but could be a very potent weapon if utilized correctly? Yes, there is. I think that most upper body techniques are underutilized, and they could be pretty effective. I wrote an article about Hector Lombard and how he uses like foot sweeps and hip tosses and things of that nature. Uh, I also did something similar about John Jones and his inside trip. And way back, I did that longer John Jones wrestling article. And I wrote a lot about upper body takedowns. So I'm not an upper body guy myself. But, you know, thinking about, you know, double overs, double unders, you know, lat drops, body locks, inside trips, outside trips, um, everything of that nature. Those techniques are harder to pull off in MMA just because you're punching and you're not, you don't have a lot of time to like settle and move people around those positions. But on the other hand, it's actually, it could be easier to set these things up because of striking. So in the Lombard example, they're in open stance and uh, I believe Lombard has a uh, collar tie and an underhook and Shield's body is you know, bladed to him. And he slammed the knee into Shields' body. And to protect that knee, uh, to protect that side from knees, Shields brings his hips in closer and he squares up his stance. And that makes it so easy for Lombard to, to sweep him over. So John Jones against Matt Hamill. You've probably seen that one. Knee up the middle. Hamill turns his body sideways. And uh, Jones goes Osotogari and trips out uh, that, uh, that far leg. Because, you know, when you're sideways like that your legs right there and it's very easy to disrupt their base by pushing them back and taking that leg out 
So striking can really put people in bad positions to be able to defend those types of techniques. Um, if you get the feel that somebody is pressuring into you hard in response to you striking them, that's a good time for a lateral drop. That's a good time for a headlock even. That's a good time for an arm spin. These techniques are pretty risky because if you fail them, you'll end up on your back and that's not good <laughs> in MMA a lot of the time. Uh, but I think there's, there's a way to systematize these things and to have some more reliable setups for different techniques. Most of the upper body stuff you see in MMA happens against the cage because that's when you have time to settle and work things and, and take your time. But I think open space, upper body, there, there's a future there. So hopefully other people believe that. Thank you, Henry. That was a good question. This one is from Karth, whose name is Christian. And he is a patron in the Discord, and he's just a good, good dude, good friend. We love him. He's a great guy. Uh, and he said, is there merit to whispering sweet nothings into your opponent's ear as you are in rear standing? If so, what are the best things to say? I didn't intend to answer this seriously, but I just, it made me think of something that a guy I used to roll with would like sing to you if he had your back and he'd like whisper in your ear. It was, it was so not helpful. It was so not helpful. It made me like embarrassed and I didn't want to train with him. And like, it was just like an ego thing. I think in training, don't do that. <laughs> in a fight though, I think if you're comfortable enough to be whispering in your opponent's ear from a rear standing position or on their back, that could be pretty demoralizing. I, it was demoralizing in training. You just don't want to be demoralizing your training partners, but against someone you're fighting that you want to be demoralized, it seems like a, a fair strategy. Uh, the best things to say, I, I don't like it matters what you say. I think as long as you, uh, you appear composed and very comfortable in the situation, that's enough to be kind of shocking. I don't know. Maybe you come up with something. I would only say nice things. Like, hey, you're doing great, buddy. And I think that would throw them off their game a lot. So thank you. Okay. This question is from Tommy. Tommy Elliott, one of our Fight Site staff members who is a jiu-jitsu black belt. And he did judo in college. I believe he placed at nationals, which I assume is a big deal. I don't know what the judo structure is in college, but I mean, if you place at nationals in anything, I care. I care about that. And Tommy is just a very smart guy, very well-rounded in his knowledge. Anyway, Tommy asks, how much of Russia's outside success, outsized success in international wrestling is due to doping? Uh, he's memeing a little bit here. So basically, in the United States at least, there's a culture of, oh, Russia, they're a bunch of cheaters. Uh, you know, they rig things and they do drugs and they're bad and they pull out guns and stab people at tournaments. The last part is true. But <laughs> and there was a situation with uh, Victor Lebedev where, was that who it was? I forget. Uh, where he like got to be on the Olympic team even though he lost to the other two guys that were contending for the team and it was because of some weird like nepotism because like one of their biggest sponsors and donors like his family was involved. I don't know. That happened. That happened. Uh, but the doping is overplayed. I think Russia is under extra scrutiny just because of the national doping uh, that, that was around like uh, around 2016 when all that was unearthed, like if you've seen Icarus, all that business. So they, they're definitely having a closer look and people in Eastern Europe 
end up failing these tests more often. I think they just don't really have the infrastructure to hide it as well, if that makes sense. It's not quite as scientific. Well, it probably is, but I, I think there's a reason why they test positive a little more often. I don't think it's because they're doing it more. I think they just haven't quite figured out how to not fail the test. I also think it's because Russia's system appeared to be tampering with the results of the tests more than having the athletes do things to themselves that will make it so they don't fail the test in the first place. I think that might be the big reason why they're failing more often, uh, because if anything goes wrong there, then your result's going to be and you're going to fail it. Um, so they might not even, excuse me, they might not even be trying to not fail. It might be just about covering up the results. Um, and that, yeah, I fully acknowledge that they have a, you know, a systemic issue of doping where it's like state-sponsored. But I don't believe that we don't have a similar system in the United States. Uh, maybe it's not as, it's not state-run. Maybe it's not uh, the coaches saying, hey, do this, do that. And it's not everyone's on the same stuff. But I think very large numbers of our athletes in every sport are doing the same things. I, I don't think it's a Russian problem. Um, so I would say, I mean, yeah, you could say a lot of Russia's success is because of doping, but then you have to say a lot of everyone's success is because of doping because it's a tough sport <laughs> to be able to compete that often and train that often. Yeah, you probably need some help. Uh, but he, I think he's playing off that, playing off that meme a little bit. Uh, but no, I think Russia's success is because they were the first ones to start taking sports super seriously uh, around the like when the Soviet era era first started. One of their ways of like asserting themselves internationally was through sport. Uh, so they ended up having training systems and you know making their all all of their their processes more streamlined and actually having set guidelines and you know, lesson plans and curriculum like with lifting and everything. So I think they just had a head start and the culture is a lot different with training. Like the Russian system is more, it's not like they, they do more play wrestling. They do more situational drilling. Um, they don't, you know, burn their bodies out every training session. They still do strength and conditioning, but uh, they just, you can see that they have a very loose feel when they wrestle because they do just do a lot more technique training than I think we do. Whereas the U.S. team, strength and conditioning is a huge, huge, huge emphasis. And yeah, if you get into an absolute dogfight, I think the, the Americans are usually going to be fresher when you come out of that. But that's not always the way to win a match. Um, so I would say they've had a head start. They emphasize the techniques more. They only do freestyle in Greco. They're not doing folk style. So they have more experience in the sport that we're competing against them in. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons for their success. Plus, it's just like... Yeah, it's a smaller sample size, but combat sports are so much more important in their culture, and it's just more it's more prevalent. So yeah, all of this is a very talented uh, region. Like the Caucasus are very talented in combat sports. It's part of their culture, and everyone does combat sports. So yeah, you're gonna get more people who are good at it because everyone in the population is doing it. Um, whereas yeah, maybe more people total are wrestling in the United States than in the Caucasus, but. It's not at the same level. It's not like the thing to do. Um, so yeah, it's a good question. That's just my guess. I don't know for a fact, but hopefully I did some justice there. Kind of relevant to that question. Uh, this is from uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Snockmoy because it, it rhymes. Because like a Nockmoy is someone that does Muay Thai. 
Um, it's spelled snack, like S-N-A-C-K. But it's like, snack moy is funny, but snock is what rhymes. So obviously I want to go with what rhymes. Makes sense to me. Um, snock moy is cool. They do uh, like fan cams and uh, other types of highlight videos. And they just have presented themselves as a very smart person in general to talk to on Twitter. So I recommend following. I think it's like inf- infinite regress with like an N and an underscore. I don't know. Figure it out. You find them. I'm going to tag them in the tweet. That, that'll help. Uh, yeah, they're asking which school of wrestling is the prettiest. And it's a good question for me because I like pretty things and pretty wrestling. And you might say like which school internationally, which school in the college system, which style, like folk free Greco is the prettiest. First of all, freestyle if that's what we're talking about, freestyle is the prettiest. I mean, Greco can be pretty uh, ugly <laughs> sometimes. Like, it's, it's, it can be kind of a grind. Uh, it's not all big throws. It's mostly pummeling and forced parterre, which has its merits, but it's not pretty. I don't think anyone would accuse it of being pretty. Freestyle, it's more fluid in the action. You know, leg attacks into chest wraps, into, you know, high cross lifts, into, you know, crazy action. It's, it's, it's very fluid, and I think fluidity is pretty. Um, plus clean clean technique is pretty like you can't afford to have drawn out finishes on your techniques as much you have to finish right away or get countered with the things that is mentioned uh, so I think freestyle as a style is prettier whereas folk I mean riding in itself is not not pretty I like it <laughs> but it's definitely not not aesthetic um, and then in terms of like college teams there aren't too many defined team styles in college, but I will say, I always say this, but Oklahoma State, those guys all have really nice uh, counters to pressure. Like they can all slide by and shrug and shuck and all that good stuff. And I think pressure counters upper body are always really, uh, really nice to see. And like really like slick low leg attacks or uh, you know, things like that. I, I think that's, that's pretty fun to look at. Some might say Penn State because of the way they scramble. It's so creative, you know, it's so fluid, but it just looks messy to me sometimes. Even if it's not, it's just talking about pretty, so the way it looks. And then uh, internationally, gotta go with Russia. Gotta go with Russia for sure. Uh, it's just so calculated most of the time. Yeah, like they take their times and they're just not, you know, not breaking their stance, um, keeping their feet set, you know, constant, constant adjustments. And then same thing as Oklahoma State, like really high level upper body counters, like underhook throw buys, slide buys, arm drags, um, you know, cool stuff like that. And Sidikov, Sajalayev, and a bunch of other guys have been known to cartwheel off of wizard situations, which is, I mean, cartwheeling is the definition of pretty wrestling, in my opinion. So those are my answers. This is a good question. All right, here's a long one, long question. I got like three of these left. And that's actually a pretty short answer. So here's the question. This is from Juice to the Gills, who is a good good person to follow on Twitter. And I believe he asked about uh, Kyle Dake last time. So another good one. He said, I've watched footage of the City Kickboxing Boys training with Frank Hickman and noticed that all the guys have wrestling boots on. It's funny you say boots when you're, when you're not American. We say shoes, wrestling shoes. But yeah, wrestling boots, I like that. It's funny because if you put legs in, like hooks, what you would call in jujitsu, if you put legs in in wrestling, that's boots in, but we call them shoes, but that's boots in when you have legs in. It's interesting. Double boots. Anyway, he said they have wrestling boots on. Volkanovski, Izzy, Hooker, etc. 
and Hickman seems to be teaching them full-blown wrestling rather than MMA wrestling. Do you think it's beneficial for fighters to train full-blown wrestling, boots and all, or only what's applicable for MMA? And what are some of the camps that have really figured out the best way to train wrestling for MMA? Juice to the gills. Tricky. So multiple parts to that question. With regard to shoes, wrestling shoes, I actually heard TJ Dillashaw talking about this. He said he likes to wrestle with shoes on still in practice because it makes him have tighter defense. If you think about it, if I shoot a swing single on you and I'm trying to keep your keep your foot in on my single, if you turn limp leg out and you gotta yank your foot out of there, if you have a shoe on, there's a lot there's more to grab onto, there's more friction, it's drier. Um, that's harder. Where if you're barefoot, you can probably slip out of things a little more easily. So on one hand, not wearing shoes probably improves your defense because you can get away with a little more and you can, you know, slide out of danger. Uh, on the other hand, it encourages you to not get in those situations in the first place because you have your shoe and it's going to be a rougher deal. I think it might backfire sometimes. Like guys aren't able to limp leg out of singles. So they just don't develop the habit of doing it. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, I got to you know, chest wrap and do something crazy or, you know, go far ankle or funk. So there's pros and cons, but I like the, the idea of, uh, of training with shoes on if it's going to improve your defense. Um, I think you should probably do both just to see what you can do and what the differences are. But with regard to training full-blown wrestling, I talked about this with Zach Goldrosen in the second episode of the podcast. Like, what, well, what would he recommend? And I think, you know... A lot, of, a lot of what you're going to learn from American trainers is a lot of folk style stuff, which is pretty useful in MMA because it's grappling. You know what I mean? So I mean, if you want to fight like Khabib, for instance, I think you'll have more success training with folk style guys, learning folk style techniques than just doing you know, neutral wrestling. Just my opinion on that. Um, yeah, you got to learn how to like chop out wrists and break guys down from, from turtle and you know put boots on in different rides and different ways to to you know, control certain positions, but then also if you're training that, you have to consider jujitsu at the same time. Um, so it's not straightforward like that. And uh, I think it really depends from person to person. I don't know if there's any one curriculum that would work for everyone, uh, but you have to know what's going to work for your game, and it's up to your coaches to see what wrestling they know that's going to work with your game if they know you. Uh, so I think it's totally case-specific, but I think there's totally room to train any any one thing in wrestling it just depends on what your game is and what would benefit you the most um is there any camp that has really figured out the best way to train wrestling for mma here is here's a very important statement for for me on one hand just in terms of teaching people how to wrestle i think aka is a pretty good camp for it just because they they've got a good system down for cage wrestling and cage control and if you want to get good at those things, yeah, I think AKA is good. If you want to learn how to straight up wrestle, ATT is good for that as well. In terms of maximizing wrestling ability at the highest level, I think it's totally about who who's the best fighters, who's making the best fighters, who's making the best strikers. Um, because the best way to implement your wrestling is to have the striking to put yourselves in the right positions to do the wrestling that you're good at. Um, like Yoel Romero has been progressing as a striker, but his striking hasn't really worked to serve his wrestling. You know, with the style that he had internationally, I would expect expect him to be more of a pressure fighter. Um, you know, manipulating levels more. You know, putting a little more motion on and 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 creating opportunities rather than reacting. 
he wasn't very reactive internationally, so it doesn't really mesh. I think the best thing to do is is to train a striking style that's going to mesh, and just to training striking style that's going to give you that versatility. <clears throat> to okay, I can pressure, or I can fight off the back foot, or I can draw you in, or I can you know create reactions out of you. It totally depends, but that's that's my general my general thesis. Now, thanks, Juice the Gills. That was a good one. I said that was going to be quick. That wasn't that quick. This podcast hasn't been as quick as I thought it would be. My mouth's getting dry. I've said that before. Okay. This question is from Octavius Rex, who I believe is is a, a more dedicated wrestling fan. We've talked about wrestling a few times. And uh, Octavius Rex says, I feel like we've been seeing crab rides more in grappling a lot lately. Could you see them used in MMA, especially when the cage prevents putting traditional hooks in? And do you know any good examples of its use in MMA? Um, so a crab ride is basically, you know, if you're thinking jujitsu, you're on someone's back. Normally, you put your hooks over their legs. This is essentially similar situation. Maybe you're a seatbelt grip. Maybe you have underhooks. Um, your feet are sliding in in the instep, and then in the, not the instep, but your insteps are going behind the knees and those crevices. Uh, crab ride's really good for being able to transition out of those positions in a wrestling match, for example, if you're riding. As long as you have control, you're still gaining riding time. And it's pretty easy to pull someone back uh, to start to transition into exposure positions and like get near fall. That's that's why someone might do it in wrestling. It's also a position that leads to a pretty dangerous uh, move called a suck back. So if I'm in crab ride and someone's trying to lean back uh, into me and put me on my back or like sit out because you know I'm behind you, so I'm not controlling this forward space. So someone might try to push move their hips forward. But if you move your hips forward, your upper body is now in danger. So they could do that and then the uh, the person on with the crab right on can actually pull down your neck and, and put you flat on the, on the mat so that can be a pretty dangerous situation but uh could you see them using mma yes yes and no i, I like to think about the situations where uh, joseph benavides has escaped from back control and honestly the crab ride is like an ideal situation for joe b to escape Basically, if you can post, if you can put your opponent on their back, if you can lean back into them and post, you should be able to get height and turn back into them and reverse that position. Whereas if you have hooks in, they can't really create that much separation between you and you and them. Um, that, that's one of the main issues with the crab ride is a lot of the control is, is with your arms. Um, you could you know, elevate the legs with your, uh, with your crab hooks. But at the same time, it's it's a little looser. It's more of a uh, transitional position. So you have to be working on something else, in my opinion. I think it was uh, might have been TC or Tristan Warner in, in high school in PA. I don't know why this is coming up for me. Um, yeah, I, I saw him use a crab ride as like a long-term ride. But it's not that common. Uh, in MMA, it's not really ringing a bell either. So I'm sorry I didn't have anything <laughs> off the top of my head there. Maybe you pose this to Ryan uh, sometime soon. I'm sure Ryan's got examples. Okay, this one's from Antho MMA, who's a Muay Thai Chi, I believe his name is. And he's got a new profile picture. It's looking sharp. And he asked, uh, the spladel, underutilized or a horrible idea? So I'm sure you've seen the spladel uh, just because it's funny looking. Um, basically, the end position is I'm behind you. I've got the control of your arms with one leg. I got control of your uh, your legs with my legs, and I'm basically 
banana splitting you and you know tearing tearing your crotch which is unfortunate unfortunate position um the way you get into a splatle is it's a counter to a single leg and you end up having to dive under and you know tilt them through on it uh underutilized yes it is underutilized horrible idea it's not a great idea i just don't really think in mma i really don't think that diving on on a uh, a counter like that is always going to be a good idea if you can disengage from a wrestling situation if you don't want to be wrestling or if you don't want to end up on bottom i think you want to disengage if you can and i wouldn't want my first reaction to be splatal but what's going to have to be you can't really i mean you could defend first and splatal later but i think it's best to just go for it right away or, or don't do it at all one example that i do remember is that joe stevenson hit one on, on nate diaz and he didn't finish it. You, you could submit some with it, theoretically, but it was funny, and it looked good, I guess, but it wasn't that useful. So I, I don't think it's totally, like, oh, the secret technique that if people start doing it, it's going to be more successful. Like, yeah, it has its place, but I don't think it's anything that we're missing, necessarily. It's a good question, though. And then he went on to say that, like, New Mexico wrestling has different names for every technique. Um, so <laughs> if you want to follow that thread... It was kind of funny. Okay, last one. And this one was from somebody I did not recognize, like Neuron, Neuron something. I'll tag him, and I'm sure I'll get to know you more in the future, and I'll have something to say about you. And uh, it's, it's not an easy question to answer, but he said, are there certain wrestling techniques which decrease or increase in efficacy in MMA? as rounds go on, whether due to fatigue, sweatiness, or some other factor. Yeah, like all of them. <laughs> I would say every technique decreases in efficacy if, if you're tired, if you're sweaty. Um, yeah, if you're trying to hold on to a tie of any sort, or manipulate something and not try to have that limb move, being sweaty isn't going to be helpful. If you're defending, being sweaty is awesome. I talked about before, <clears throat> like limp legging out of a single. I mean, if you're trying to clasp onto somebody's you know leg and, and ankle and they can just kick it out and it just slips right through your, your grip then that's helpful um fatigue i would say fatigue usually results in broken stance and broken posture and like slower reaction so leg attacks usually become more available when your opponent fatigues because um, you can pull them down and they're gonna be slower to get up and they're gonna be trying to get a break and straightening up in their posture and that's a good time to shoot leg attacks if you're tired then i think you don't want to be going underneath somebody you want to be taking clean attacks or you want to try to like you know slide by underhook throw by do something upper body so you're not having to fight back up out of a position if that makes sense um but i mean that's such a broad question it's hard to hammer in one answer but that's that's the general gist of things okay i don't have much more to say and uh i think we'll do we'll do another one after the card the card's another week from now we'll see maybe i'll do another one before then but uh i've got more wrestling content coming soon we got a uh, wrestling comrades is coming back that's my podcast with seth where we talk about international wrestling and we're doing an alternate commentary on the uh, magomed kurbanaliyev so look out for that that'll be fun and uh yeah see you see you later